Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine and you're listening to the Philosophy Now show on Resonance FM. This afternoon we'll be talking about the seminal 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant. With me dis- to discuss one of history's most profound thinkers, I have John Callanan, who lectures on Kant at King's College London, and Andrew Ward, who lectures on philosophy at University of York. Hello. Immanuel Kant is not a household name, but perhaps he should be. His works advocate a change in how we see our relationship to the world, as radical as the revolutions of Copernicus, Darwin or Freud. Indeed, he calls his ideas a Copernican revolution in philosophy. Unfortunately, his dry technical writing style and his obscuring of his core arguments within a complex system of ideas responding to quite obscure 18th century philosophical debates with some 18th century assumptions has meant his revolutionary ideas have not become widely known outside of philosophy and sometimes within it. This hour, I'm hoping that we'll be able to distill into you some of the revolution in thought that Kant never quite managed to instigate in the world in terms that everyone listening to this can understand and see the, the significance of. But first, I wonder if we could set the scene a little. Um, John, what was the intellectual or philosophical milieu within which Kant was thinking and working? Well, when he was born in 1724, the movement of rationalism was still pretty dominant in Prussia, where he lived all his life. Okay, and rationalism being what? So rationalism would be, well, starting earlier with Descartes, would would be the philosophical movement that suggested that all the fundamental philosophical truths could be known just through the power of reason alone. Right. So you wouldn't have to go out into the world and do uh, have any particular experiences or do any particular experiments or make any particular obs- observations to know, for example, that God existed or that there was an external world or any of these traditional problems, but that you could just do it pretty much with the power of your own reason just analyzing certain concepts and understanding the true meaning of those concepts and uh, Kant was reacting to that well he was brought he was brought up in that tradition so Kant doesn't write his first really famous work uh, the critique of pure reason until he's 57 years old so for for most of his life he's working as a rationalist and gradually he becomes disillusioned with that movement but he always hangs on to parts of it he always wants to retain a little bit of the power of reason but he wants to mix it with other things okay and um I understand that uh, Kant said that he was particularly uh, inspired by the work of David Hume. I wonder if you could tell us what was it about uh, what David Hume said that Kant was reacting to, please, Andrew. Yes, well, uh, he wrote a book, Did Kant, called, unappealingly, Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics that May uh, Hope to Be a Science. And in that, he set out why he came to produce his critical philosophy, as it's called. That's to say his uh, mature philosophy. And he singled out Hume's attack on the principle of causation. That is to say the principle that every event must have a cause. And Hume uh, was critical about that idea, right. right? Hume himself was critical about that principle. He asked himself, how could it be established? This is Hume. How could it be established? Could it be established by experience? No, says Hume, because in order to establish that every event must have a cause, you'd have to look at every event which has happened in the past, in the present, or in the future. That's not possible, not every possible event in the past. Nor could you establish that every event must have a cause, necessarily has a cause, not just that those that you've experienced, as a matter of fact, have a cause. 
so you can't, exp- you, ca- you can't prove it by means of experience. Now, the only other way that Hume thought it was possible to prove it was by showing that it's true in virtue of the meaning of the terms involved. So a rationalist thing like John was saying... Well, if I said all bachelors are unmarried, right. for instance, uh, that would be true in virtue of the meaning of the terms involved. And you're quite right, Grant, that a lot of the metaphysicians prior to Kant thought that it was by analysing certain philosophical terms that they could prove propositions like every event must have a cause. Right. But Hume pointed out that, in fact, it was not possible to prove, in virtue of the meaning of the terms involved, the proposition that every event must have a cause. Okay, so, according to Hume, you couldn't prove it by means of experience, that was the first Mm -hmm. way. You can't prove it in virtue of the meaning of the terms involved, as you can prove that every bachelor is unmarried. Right. Uh, So Hume concluded that it was, in fact, not a provable proposition that it was just something that we came to believe in as a result of what he said, constant conjunction. Right. And this awoke Kant from his dogmatic slumbers. Okay, uh, John, you said... Yeah, it was just, I think, in that work, Kant also says that Hume's critique is pretty good, but he thinks it almost goes too far, because he thinks that you could use that same argument to show that you don't know that 7 plus 5 is equal to 12. You haven't... Right. You, can, you don't know that even the truths of mathematics are absolutely secure if you don't know that cause is secure. So he thinks, from reading Hume, he realises something must have gone wrong here. This has gone too far. Throwing mathematics out as well is just okay. too much. So he wants to find... So Kant wants to now find a way that he can prove causality, is that...? Well, yes, uh, uh, certainly, but um, as John just said, uh, Kant noted that there are other propositions, like 7 plus 5 equals 12, or the straight line is the shortest distance between two points, both mathematical uh, judgments, which seem to have the same status as every event must have a cause. That is to say, they didn't seem to be provable by experience, because when we say that 7 plus 5 equals 12, we mean it's always the case that 7 plus 5 must equal 12. You can't prove that by experience. But, said Kant, it's also true that it doesn't seem to be provable uh, by by means of analysis of the terms involved. Right. Okay. So it, too, doesn't appear to be a provable proposition. But Kant thought this was absurd, that obviously something had gone wrong with uh, Hume's analysis if he concluded simply from the fact that something couldn't be proved either in, in virtue of experience or in virtue of the meaning of the terms involved, that therefore it was not a, a provable uh, proposition. Uh, it wasn't a proposition that we could, we could uh, know uh, because we clearly do know that 7 plus 5 equals 12. Right, OK. I think that uh, Kant thought that Hume got certain things right as right. well as getting things wrong. Like, for example, um, Hume suggested that his notion of causation that he had, that when we do make judgments, there's no real causation out there in the world, but how do we come to make these kinds of judgments that some cause is, that something has been caused by something else? And he says, well, it's a bit of a habit. We see things happening together very frequently, and then the mind projects the notion of causation. With enough associations, right. it starts to see causation right. there. And so on Hume's account, the mind is contributing a huge amount to how we understand the world. 
world that we it's not just about about receiving information in but also how we interpret that how the mind interprets that information and i think kant takes that on into his own project okay so when he's writing his first major work the critique of pure reason what was kant trying to achieve in that book andrew well, I mean, there are a number of things that he was trying to achieve. Right. Briefly, and it, he, it might be said that he was trying to show uh, uh, whether metaphysics was possible at all. By metaphysics, you mean what? Good. That's a good question. Um, there are various sides to metaphysics for Kant. Right. There are propositions like every event must have a cause, which right. do count for him as metaphysical propositions. But there are also others, like God exists, right. the soul is immortal, and we have free freedom of the will, claims that we have freedom of the will, that right. God exists. Uh, those also are metaphysical claims. Right. Now, uh, he divided metaphysics into those two parts, the part like every event must have a cause, which he said uh, underpinned our knowledge of nature. And other judgments like God exists... Uh, claims that God exists, not to say true claims, uh, the soul is immortal, which transcend experience. No experience could prove uh, that the soul uh, is immortal. And neither are they true in virtue of the meaning of the terms involved. So right. that's a synthetic a priori proposition. That's to say it's true, uh, uh, if it's true at all, not in virtue of the meaning of the terms involved. Right. So it's synthetic. But also, it, it can't be uh, proved by means of experience, and so it is what he called a priori. OK, I wonder if we could break that down a bit. What, um, John, what does... Uh, he, Kant says in the introduction to his critique that he was trying to find out how synthetic a priori judgment is possible. What, mm. what is he trying to find out when he says that? What, does these what do these terms mean? If you could expand a bit on what Andrew said. Please. Well... There are two different distinctions that he's putting together. The first there is the distinction between the a priori and the a posteriori. Which and by a posteriori, we just mean knowledge that's learned or justified by going out into the world and uh, through experience. So sort of scientific knowledge. Pre pretty experiential knowledge. Exactly. Right? They just go out and observe it. Right. Um, with a priori knowledge, we're thinking more of the knowledge that we associate with mathematics. Okay, you so don't you need to do any observations to grasp that 7 plus 5 is equal to 12. You can just somehow know it, it seems, just through the power of, of reason itself. So once you know that seven, what 7 means and what plus means and 5 means, you can work out that they well, equal 12, right? Well, that's exactly what Kant was wondering, because if it is a priori, if you can know it without going into the world, does that mean it's also analytic? Analytic means true just by virtue of the meanings of the concepts. Right, okay. So Kant had a radical thought. He thought it is a priori. It is something that is mathematical truths. Mathematical truths. They're, they're necessarily true and you can know them without any particular experiences. Uh, but he thought they're synthetic. Right. They're not true just by virtue of definition. They're true by virtue of us taking concepts together, bringing them together and doing something with them and right. learning in that way. So it's a slightly different story than just doing analysis of the meaning of concepts. Okay. So, so Andrew, why was, why was this an important project for Kant in his book to try and prove synthetic a judgments? Well, he came to the conclusion that all the central questions of metaphysics right. were, well, the judgments of metaphysics were synthetic a priori propositions. Okay. But the thing that we haven't touched on is the curiosity of such propositions. How can we prove them? 
Right. This is, in a sense, the first and important question that Kant wanted to ask. Think about it. Um, it's synthetic, okay, so it's not true in virtue of the meaning of the terms involved. Let's take the proposition, every event must have a cause. Right. cause. We, when we started with that. That was the one that awoke, the proposition that awoke Hume from his... Do uh, um, Kant. Sorry, Kant, from his dogmatic slumbers. Right. It's synthetic, that's to say it's not true in virtue of the meaning of the terms involved, and yet it carries... It is universal, every event... And it's necessary. Right. How can you possibly prove such a proposition which is both synthetic and a priori? And that, he said, is the question that he's going to be concerned with, at least in the first part of the critique of pure reason. In fact, he's going to be considering it all the way through. So, in a sense, his project is to ask himself, how are synthetic a priori propositions possible? Because all metaphysical claims, every event must have a cause, for instance, and also the soul is immortal, right. we have free will, God exists, such claims are also synthetic a priori. How are we going to prove them? Okay, so... It's important to note as well that Kant isn't necessarily that optimistic about what you can do in philosophy. Right. He's starts off the first edition of the book by saying that human reason has these problems that it has naturally, but it can't solve them all. So it gives us a, an, a new picture of the human being where there are some problems that can be solved and there are others that can't. And really part of the job of philosophy is to sort out which is which. So would it be fair to say that part of his project is to find out the limits of the possibility of knowledge philosophical knowledge then. that's exactly right that's what uh -huh. he takes so his uh, his project is a very high level one he, he wants to ask how is mathematical knowledge possible what is causation but also he's asking questions about philosophy itself what is philosophical explanation how much can we achieve and what are its limits as you say okay um what sort of conclusions did he reach about the limits of what we could know and well uh in the Critique of Pure Reason, let's just keep to that for a moment, the Critique of Pure Reason, he thought that he could prove those propositions of metaphysics which underpin our experience of nature. For instance, our experience of nature is just knowledge of whatever happens in the space and time. Right. He thought that there were certain fundamental propositions which made our experience of nature our experience of objects in space and time, possible. These, he thought, we could prove. They are all synthetic a priori propositions, but these, he thought, we could prove. Like causation. Like causation. Every event has a cause. Um, substance. The substance in the world can neither be created nor destroyed. Right. For instance, these propositions, which obviously form an important bedrock for Newtonian physics, can indeed be proved. But he also thought that there are certain other propositions in the Critique of Pure Reason uh, which cannot be proved. I stress, proved by theoretical reason, like God exists, the soul is immortal, and uh, free will exists amongst human beings. These, he thought, could not be proved or disproved. I stress that. Uh, we can't right. use our pure theoretical reason to prove them. 
That's a, an important aspect that you can neither prove nor disprove certain things because Kant is working in the Enlightenment context. He wa- it's right. a new age of religious toleration, uh-huh. of secularization, and there's a lot, there, but there's still an enor- enormous amount of uh, persecution of people for their religious beliefs on the grounds that some people might claim that God is of this certain nature or that there is no God, for example. Kant wants to take that kind of question out of of the debate. Right. He wants to say it's beyond possible proof, but it's also beyond possible disproof. So you have no grounds on you which you... can't say anything either one way so or the other. you can't persecute anyone for any of these beliefs they don't know one way right. or the other. And he says uh, in a famous line at the start, he wanted to deny knowledge of certain questions so that he could make room for faith, so that he could allow right. for okay. cer- certain people to have their faith-based beliefs outside of being uh, arguments about whether it's rational or not. I don't quite agree with John on that. Um, So far as the critique of pure reason is concerned, I think I would entirely agree with it. But when you come to his ethical writings, he wrote a a second critique called the Critique of Practical Reason. He does think that you can know certain of these propositions. In my view, John can come back at me. He did think you could prove that we were free. Right. You could also have good reason, but not absolute proof that God exists and the soul is immortal. But I do stress this is not theoretical reason. Mm. This is practical reason. Right. Uh, maybe we, yeah. we will have time to get onto that, but I don't know. Um, so, um, Kant, as I mentioned in the introduction, called his uh, philosophy a Copernican revolution in thought. What did he mean by that, John? Well... He's trying to use the analogy of Copernicus, who, uh, as we know, suggested a switch in the way that we look at things. Right. So we used to presume that um, the sun moves around the earth, but in fact, as we know now, it's the earth that's moving around the sun. Uh-huh. And so what, that happens, what happens when you do that is you take some terms like the earth and the sun and you kind of shift around the way that you're thinking about them. You, you do a switch. Now, Kant thought we needed to do a switch at the very way that we think about doing philosophy. Okay. And he said the, the concepts that we have to switch are uh, the concept of knowledge and the concept of an object. Okay. So we would think that a natural way of what it is to know something is for our mind to match up to how the world is, right. that our representations actually correspond to how objects are So there. we experience the world, and our experience of the world is how the world is. That's e- our natural inclination to think that, right? E- exactly. And he thinks that is a very natural inclination, but in fact, it's not the correct way to think about it. Hume, as we were just talking about with causation, co- uh, regards to causation, had shown that we get in lots of information, and then we interpret it, and it comes out uh, in a different form. So we see that there is... Uh, um, causation there. Kant thinks that all experience is somewhat like that. Right. That we get in some unprocessed information, but then our mind contributes concepts and starts and creates the organized world as we see it. So imagine if we use a, an analogy with psychology, we can imagine that our eyes take in lots of data and information, right. but what happens, our brain has to interpret that data right. and then presents a world in front of us. And Kant said, now we have to think that what it is to be an object, you have to look at what it is to know an object, you have to look at the nature of the mind's contribution. So to what is important is how the, how the mind interprets the data of the world is as important as the world itself. Perhaps. Exactly. And in some sense, the mind creates the structure of the world. Okay, uh, Andrew, I mean, could you elaborate on 
Well, I think John's done a pretty good job. I mean, this Copernican revolution is, in a sense, incident. It was not called a Copernican revolution by Kant himself, right? Okay, uh, but it's always referred to as Kant's Copernican right. revolution. And what in, was in revolutionary about it? Well, the John has brought the, the, the point out that um, I've got a quote here, a famous quote from Kant. Right. Hitherto, it has been assumed that all our knowledge must conform to objects. That's right. to say, that um, the object exists independently of our consciousness. And we hope that by using our senses and perhaps some reason, we will learn about those objects. Right. That's the traditional way. But all attempts to, ex uh, attempts to extend our knowledge of objects by establishing something in regard to them independent of experience have on this assumption ended in failure. This is a famous quote from him. So, he says, we must make trial of turning things round, the point that John, John was making. Uh -huh. And instead of assuming that objects spatio-temporal objects, the objects of nature, right. exist independently of our consciousness, perhaps they are to some extent, and he will try to argue this is true, that the objects in space and time are, in certain fundamental respects, dependent on our mind. Okay, but the question is, what in what respects are they dependent? Because clearly, if I'm having an experience of uh, seeing John, for instance, then John must be there for me to see him. So the question is, in what sense are the objects not independent? Is John well, not independent? If you mean that John exists independent of your possible experience, which yeah. is what one normally does think, then Kant denies that. Really? Anyway, on my understanding of him, okay. uh, that objects only exist as objects of possible experience, that's to say objects in space and time. But I, I would just like to come back to this thing about synthetic a priori proposition, right, because you asked sure. me about the Copernican Revolution, right. and the point about the Copernican Revolution is that Kant thought that he could prove these basic propositions synthetic a priori propositions at least those that underpin nature like right. every event has a cause and that substance can neither be created nor destroyed if we go through this Copernican revolution and make the world to some extent dependent on our mind rather than hoping that our mind will fit a world that exists entirely independently oh, of fantastic. us um, John you Disagreed with some of what Andrew said there? Not so much disagreed, but um, just Kant describes himself as an idealist of a certain kind. Which by, means? By idealism, we mean we understand that uh, something about the world is dependent on the mind. Right. Now, you might think that, I don't know, you might think that the colours of things are really just in our mind and the world yeah. as it is in itself isn't really coloured. Right. So then you'd be an idealist about colour. Sorry, the, by the world as it is in itself, you mean the world independent in, of our perceptions exa of it. Exactly. Right. And so then you'd be an idealist about colour, for example. Right. Uh, Kant is an idealist about space and time. Yeah, he thinks that the space and time is only in our minds and isn't in the world independently of our minds. But there's something he's not an idealist about right. and that, that there is is a world out there that the existence of the world he thinks we don't bring the world into existence by virtue of thinking about it right. we bring certain features or characteristics of it into existence but not the very fact that it's there can i just query you about the space and time thing i mean mm. if if the world independent of us doesn't exist in space and time then uh, first of all where does our experience of space and time come from and how can it possibly be true that uh, things are ordered in our experience at all if uh, space and time don't exist for those things themselves. Mm, well, it's a, it's a tricky one. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, it's space and time are, are some of the things that 
Kant thinks we contribute. Right. So we have, in our experience in, of the world. Yeah. Right? So it's our mind. We get stimulated somehow by by the world out there, and then we project things onto it. Now, some people think we might project our colours onto it. Other people think we, like Hume, we project causal experience onto it. Right. Kant thinks we project even that uh, things are to the left of and to the right of each other, that things are on really? top okay. of, that these kinds of, uh, on top of, below of, these kinds of ways of describing the world are just ways in which our mind interprets the data that comes in. So the or- any order that is, any spatial order, for example, that's out there is something that we've contributed. That's his thought. Okay. Um, Andrew, do you, th- do you think, what do you think the right way of looking at, according to Kant, is our relationship of, of our experience of the world to the world itself? Uh, well, well uh, the world as it is in itself yeah. is a world that is not in space and is not in time, but we can know nothing about it by using either our senses or our theoretical reason. Okay. What we do know is what exists in space and time because space and time are forms by means of which we experience objects in space and time and as john said Kant, they are contributed space and time by us so we can only know we can only know uh, what we experience of the world we can't know anything about the world beyond our experience of it according to kant is that a fair thing to say well, I think that's not that's not incorrect. Yes, I think that's okay. that's true. Uh, there are two things that we contribute. First of all, space and time, but we also, as, as John was certainly intimating, we also contribute the basic concepts or laws by means of which what appears to us in space and time uh, is ordered. So do you uh, mean like laws of physics? Exactly. The so basic the human law, mind like, constructs the laws of physics to experience uh, well, the world. Well, I think constructs. I mean, it already, uh, they are there as basic rules. Every event must have a cause, right, for okay. instance, is a rule by which we come to know any change that exists in space. According to Kant, no event, no change that exists in the world can be a-causal, that's to say not have a cause, as opposed to Hume's position, which was it's perfectly conceivable uh, uh, that the world should either have been uh, non-causal or should become non-causal at any moment. Well, the world means the spatio-temporal world. But Kant wants to say that the very possibility of there being spatio-temporal objects depends on two factors, space and time which we contribute and certain basic laws and concepts which we bring to the given so that we construct uh, uh, the external world of objects in certain kind of movement ways in which they move around. Uh, we, we, in fact, make that experience Well, this raises the question to me, what does the world itself contribute to this, our experience of it? I mean, v- n- not a whole lot, according right. to uh, according to Kant. One, I, I, like I said, one of the few things that it does contribute is the fact that there's something rather than nothing there. If for, re- right. for uh, there's a reason why there is a table here in front of me, and the fact that it exists is nothing to do with me. Right. So we're what uh, Kant would call finite creatures. We don't. We can't just bring things into existence just by thinking of them. I think of Paris now. That doesn't bring Paris into the room. Right. 
any kind of way. And similarly, I can't, I can't wish away this table if, just because I want it to be there. These things aren't up to us in certain kinds of ways. So the, everything about our experience that isn't up to us is contributed by, is contribu- contributed by those things outside the mind or... Apart from the mind. Sure, but what is that? What, I mean, does it, do we know anything about that according to Kant? Very little, he says. He, he describes us as the realm of things as they are in themselves, right. is his way of talking about it. Or sometimes he uses a different word, noumena. And uh, he says that our knowledge of that realm, of that kind of level, is very, very thin indeed. But it, it should be noted that Kant would say, like, uh, contemporary, the world that we can know goes quite deep. It goes down to the levels of uh, of quarks and neutrons and whatever else. All our uh, most deepest science is still knowledge of the world as it appears, as we can perceive it. So when he's talking about uh, things as they are in themselves, he means some really deep down level that only maybe a being of of a super intelligence could ever access. Okay, uh, and that, that, on that point, I think we'll go to our track, which is going to be uh, The Further Inventions of the Time Being by the Church. Discoveries they made Now they wander around the earth 
That was um, the church with uh, the forever adventures of the time being. Welcome back to Philosophy Now show on Resonance FM. I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, which you should all buy. And I'm asking my guests, uh, John Callanan from King's in London and Andrew Ward from York, about the thoughts of 18th century German philosopher uh, and revolutionary thinker, Immanuel Kant. Um, Before the track, we were talking about uh, Kant's view that there was a distinction between... uh, our experience of the world and the world as it is in itself, as he termed it. Now, um, uh, Andrew, he called what? What did he call them, and why did he make this distinction? Uh, Okay, okay. Uh, We do need to say a bit more about that, I think. Um, The world that we experience is the world in space and time. The world that we use, we come to know by means of our senses and perhaps by our understanding as well, is the world in space and time. That is the world of appearances. Right. Okay. And he contrasts that with the world as it is in itself. Right. That's to say the world that is not in space and not in time, but uh, is the ground or cause of the given that uh, that appears to us in space and time and which our minds then collect together under certain rules. This is a, obviously a much more difficult part of his philosophy, but I think it is important that when we were saying beforehand that the mind contributes, the human mind contributes the space, space and time right. and the laws, it doesn't contribute everything the world of things in themselves or what he also calls the numinal world uh give us the manifold right which uh, means what sorry well the manifold is just the data the series uh, the, the data that appears our experience in, in time in, in not quite because no. our experience is a product of the given data the manifold which is arises, is grounded in, causes, depending on which uh, way of looking at it you want to use, people differ about this. The, the um, numinal world, the things in themselves, ground the manifold that appears in space and time. But it doesn't become, or they don't become objects in space and right. time, until the mind has also employed these concepts or laws that is that's in the mind to produce a fully determined spatio-temporal world, the Newtonian world of objects that are rigorously determined and matter is neither created nor destroyed right. in this and so can, well, can I stop? Can, can I make sure that I've got, got my understanding mm. about this right? You say that there's something to Kant... Uh, in the world as it 
is independent of us, which creates this set of data which our minds then convert into our experience of, of objects of the world objects, called yes. the phenomenal world that's right so the noumenal world is the world as it is in itself and uh, th then uh, we convert the data of this world in itself but then surely he's he's got to be saying that there is something about the noumenal world that we know which is the data that is the basis for our experience of it. Now, is that not a re is something substantial to know about the world? Really? Well, he, it, it can seem that way. One of the uh, most tricky things to understand about Kant is why he thought that it seems plausible that right. the mind does a lot of interpreting of the information that comes in right. and that we construct it and we make sense of it and we construct it with certain concepts. Right, like space and time for like Kant, right. But... Um, but why does he think that if the mind contributes, contributes a concept, then that means it's not there in the thing in yeah, itself? Yeah, that's a good question. Which so is one, of, your own question one of the... Well, he has, it's, he has complicated reasons for why he thinks that's the right. case. But he does think that um, there are... He thinks that all the kind of conceptual vocabulary that we have, all the concepts that we use are just exclusively coming from the mind. And the only job of things in themselves is really just to trigger our minds into action. It just stimulates our minds somehow to, to right. start doing this interpreting work. So one of the things that uh, we have to understand is Kant is imagining that when we go out and look at the world, we think we can make sense of it. We see objects, we see substances, we see things engaged in causal connections, like when apples fall off trees. Right. And we think that the world is like that anyway. Right. But Kant is saying by the time we come along to that and see these kinds of experiences, our mind's already done an awful lot of work off stage, as it were, so that we can see the world as that. So by, at the first time that we're experiencing things, we're already using these concepts and, and uh, bringing, to bring those kind of experiences into being and making them coherent. Okay, Andrew, how does he, how does he justify this perspective on reality, if we can put it like that? I mean, why does he think this is true? Well, this comes back to the Copernican revolution, right. th that he thinks that if we think of the world in itself and the world of appearances as two in some way distinct, some yeah. ways distinct, uh, then we can explain those propositions which he has no doubt are true, like so, 7 plus 5 equals 12. So he's starting with an idea and he's trying to work his way into explaining his position. We, we can justify uh, judgments, uh, synthetic a priori judgments, which we began with, yeah. uh, which uh, um, uh, we, we think are true, but we go and see how to prove them. But if we have divide the world into, sorry, divide the world, see divide everything into the world of appearances and things in themselves and confine ourselves to the world of appearances right. we can prove that seven plus five equals twelve we can prove that every event has a cause because actual fact these kind of propositions make our experience for spatio-temporal objects possible at all whilst if we didn't have this distinction between appearances right. and things in themselves it would be a complete puzzle how we've come to have any knowledge of the world 
world at all. So that's his justification, or one of his justifications. He has several. Right, I see. But that's one of his justifications for making the distinction between appearances and things in themselves. It's hard Thank to you. get our heads around where Kant is coming Certainly. from, but yeah. one of the th- ways, if, if there's an option between either you know the simple truths of mathematics, that one plus one is equal to two, or, uh, and if that's the case, then you can't, n- there's a deep down mysterious world called the world of things in themselves that aren't in space and aren't in time, and we can't know anything about them, but we, they must be there. He thinks it's one or the other. You can't have both. You've got, you either have mathematics and you accept that there's a world of things in themselves, or you, th- you don't think there's an, a world of things in themselves, but then he thinks you can't have mathematics. And he's not willing to give up mathematics. He's still in that scientific rationalist tradition that he thinks we do know these things. Right. And he thinks the only way we can explain, as Andrew was saying, how we can justify how we know these things is if it's a story really about how our, if there are truths about how our minds interpret the world and how our minds bring the world into being well, in certain kinds of well, ways. Well, can I pick up on that? Because my question then would be, why is it the case that we can only know things if things are the way that Kant has set them out here, um, Andrew? Uh, well, we could only know things which carry necessity and universality, which, which like we began... Like philosophical ideas, Like 7 really. plus 5 equals 12. Right. Like every event has a cause. These are synthetic a priori propositions. Right. We could only know these things yeah. if we divide the world into... Sorry, div- divide our knowledge into, appear- into appearances which we do know and into things in themselves which are the ground or cause of the data out of which we construct the appearances about which we can know virtually uh, nothing. Yes, but why? That's the question. Why? Why why can we only know them if we do this? Well, well, because as I said right at the beginning, they carry both necessity and universality with them. You can't prove them by experience. Oh, okay. Okay, and you can't prove them in virtue of the meaning of the terms involved. And Kant's revolutionary way is to say you can prove them by showing that they make our experience of objects in space and time possible, but only if space and time belong to to the mind and not independently of it. Okay, uh, why is this a revolution in thinking, John? Well, Kant shifted the attention of what we're uh, to not just to uh, what we might call ground level philosophical questions like what is causation or what is substance and uh, what is the soul but also to a higher level question about what are we doing when we're doing philosophy how is it that we can even hope to do any philosophy at all or thought or any thought at all really possibly yes I think that's right and so he started to do this examination of like what is the philosopher what perspective is he or she occupying when they try to to do philosophy. And it became a very influential question about just what are the proper conditions, if you you will, for doing uh, philosophy. And afterwards, people started uh, investigating lots of different types of uh, conditions, the starting points from when you might be doing philosophy. If you, um, um, the the German idealists, if you think about, uh, uh, for example, Nietzsche and someone like that, they all start to examine the different conditions under which someone starts to do philosophy. And I think that started with Kant, where he started to ask ourselves, what are we doing when we're doing so, philosophical So the, the question now becomes, 
what are the conditions under which we can know or think anything rather than assuming that we've got rational thought and it's as simple as that? Yes, I think Kant starts off from the assumption that we do know things. Right. He's not like Descartes. Right. He doesn't think, like, let's try and cast everything into doubt and, and, then see, and then build our way back up. But rather, he says, let's start with the things that we obviously do know and examine what's needed to make that knowledge possible. So he starts with mathematics and he says, what? OK, we know that 7 plus 5 is equal to 12. But what is it that we're knowing when we're knowing things like that? Right. And he says, really, what we're knowing is... Uh, things our own minds are contributing. He thinks that really mathematics is a story about how we organize things in um, uh, space and time. 7 plus 5 equals 12 really just means if you have 7 dots and 5 dots, then you ha have uh, 12 dots or 7 strokes and 5 strokes and you put them together and you've got 12 strokes. But they're really truths about things that you can experience in space and time. Right. So he, he tells you a story about what mathematics is that is very mind-dependent. And then he says, well, okay, that's what knowledge of the world is. It's knowledge of these kind of representations that we contribute. Okay. And let's start and build up from there and see what else do we contribute in making sense of the world. Fine, thank you. Um, I wonder if you could just briefly go into the idea of free will. I mean, uh, this uh, distinction between the world of appearances and the world as it is in itself has important implications for what Kant says about human freedom. I wonder if you could elaborate on what they are and why he, why this is so, Andrew. Yes, well, um, so far we've been looking at, a, in a sense, of what he thinks we can know. Right. Particularly those propositions that, car that carry universality always and necessity, like every event must have a cause, or 7 plus 5 equals yeah. 12. But there are other propositions which he thinks that we cannot know by means of theoretical reason. Uh -huh. Like, for instance, that human beings have free will. We can't know whether they do or whether they don't. Right, because there's arguments, equal arguments equal. on both sides. And this is actually important because he has a second reason. You asked me earlier right. why he divided the world into the world of things and right. themselves and appearance. And I said he, he had a number of reasons. Right. We looked at one. But there's a second, that, that he thinks that a number of these metaphysical propositions, like we have free will, <laughs> that uh, the soul is immortal, etc., um, and, and so quite a lot of other ones, that in fact there can be arguments on both sides right. which are equally good if you don't uh, accept his, his Copernican revolution. Right. That's to say, don't distinguish between the world of appearances and things in themselves. If you think that we're aware of things as they are in themselves and not merely appearances, uh -huh. then you're going to get involved in, in, in contradictions. Uh, and in fact, you're not, in fact, have a consistent view of the world at all, anyway, so far as these important metaphysical questions are concerned. If, on the other hand, you embrace the Copernican revolution and acknowledge uh, that the world of things in themselves is a world about which we can know virtually nothing other than it exists by means of theoretical reason, then indeed these contradictions can be shown to disappear. Right, they can okay. be shown to disappear. And that's the second reason why he thinks the Copernican revolution can be proved. Okay, fantastic. These contradictions. Um, so, um, John, uh, why, according to Kant, must uh, free will be outside of uh, the phenomenal world or physical causality? Or well, uh, as Andrew was saying, he wants, in some sense, the, d the division between the world as it appears and world as it is in itself 
gives Kant a space where he can put certain problems that are uh, incap that he are incapable of being answered. He thinks that the and free will is one of them. He thinks that the phenomenal world, the world as it appears, is completely causal. Everything that happens right. happens in accordance with some uh, cause, and that cause is he would say a, a, a physical cause. Right. So he completely agrees that if you look in the world as it appears to explain why I do the actions that I do, you can in engage in psychology and neuroscience and you can find physical explanations for why I did what I did. But that isn't the full story, he thinks. There's, we, we don't think ourselves to be completely determined. Well, some of us don't take yeah. us to be completely determined by physical causes. We think that we freely choose to do things. Okay. And Kant said, well, why... But we don't find any little flash of freedom when we look at our MRI scans right. or do the neuroscience. Okay. We don't see any power of free will there. So then we must conclude there is no free will. It's impossible. Right. If, if it were, if it would show it, up. Right. If you can't experience it. But what if there's a different world? Right. What if there's a different domain where something like free will might exist that's right. beyond the thing that right. we could experience? Now, that would help a little bit with the thought that we don't see free will but might still have it, but it's a very mysterious notion. It's free will is existing in an entirely different domain from the one that we can experience, yet somehow manifests in this one when I choose to raise my hand. Isn't that contradicting his, uh, his assertion that we can't know anything about the world as it is in itself? If free will, it operates in the world as it is in itself. I think he's, he's on delicate ground here, let's put <laughs> right, it that way. Okay. He would claim, though, that I've never, uh, he would say, I've never claimed that I know that free will exists. Right. I just can think that it's possible that there is a, di a different domain out there and one of the things that could be out there is free will. Just like I can think that there could be a God that exists out there right. as well. Okay, uh, Andrew, what does Kant mean when he says that he's a transcendental idealist and an empirical realist? Well, uh, he's a transcendental idealist because he thinks that the world in space and time right. uh, does not exist independently of human or, or, or our cognition does not exist. Okay, uh, so but, that's the uh, idealist is uh, yes. somebody who believes that the world exists in the mind, right? Well, it doesn't in exist independently of uh, mind, the, the human minds, that's right. Okay, what's transcendental about? Um, um, uh, because from the, from the perspective of the way things are in themselves, right. um, the, the, the world in space and time is merely ideal. It doesn't actually exist uh, in its own, own, own right. But so far uh, in itself, independently of human consciousness. I, I mean, I, I think it is important that we go back to this thing about free will right. because it does uh, tie up with, with um, the, the importance that he gives to free will. I mean, John is completely right that he doesn't think that you can prove in the critique of pure reason that freedom of the will exists. Indeed, as John mentioned, and it's a tricky question to which I'm certainly not going to give an answer now, how can free will even manifest itself in the right. world if everything in the world is causally determined right. and in order to be free, you should not be causally determined? This is a famous problem. Right, but it okay. is absolutely central to his Copernican revolution, freedom of the will, because, according to him, you need freedom of the will 
uh-huh. in the sense in which he believes there's freedom of the will, in which he, th- he thinks that the, that the freedom of the will could exist if there is going to be such a thing as moral action. Right. Mm. So that so you need he, freedom to be moral. You, you need freedom to be moral, and according to him, you need the, free, the sort of freedom that he thinks is possible in the uh, world of things in themselves. And it's only when he comes to his moral philosophy that he actually thinks that you can prove that we are free. But that is a practical proof. Our realization that duty is something that we have to obey, or we ought to obey, that duty is something that we ought to do, proves that we are free. There's a famous phrase, ought implies can. You can't accept that you ought to do something right. unless you, you can, can do, do it. it. Right. Okay. And so since we do accept that we ought to do uh, our duty, well, it follows that we must accept from a practical point of view that we are free. Unfortunately, we don't really have time to go into the ethics in a big way. Um, I wonder, uh, just, can you say, John, what does Kant conclude about how what we've been talking about, synthetic a priori judgments, mm. these judgments about things like two plus two is four mm. and philosophical truths. How does he uh, conclude they are possible to make? So, I- in the end, they're possible because there's a certain conception of truth now that we have right. that isn't any longer about uh, when our representations match on to the deepest way the universe is as they are in themselves. Right. Rather, something can be true so long as it's coherent and structured and obeys the concepts that we bring to the table. Right. So he, it, there's a, a certain redefinition of even what it is to have objective, true claims about the world. And that's, uh, going back to your earlier question, the way in which he thinks you can still be an empirical realist. Right. You might think to be, to be an empirical realist... Sorry, what does that mean? You have to... So uh, he, he said strangely that he's a transcendental idealist, but he's also an empirical realist. Uh, which mean, yeah. And it looks as if these are two different positions. But he says... Transcendental idealism, Andrew just explained. But empirical realism, he claims, is just the idea that you can know a world of objects that engage and obey laws and causal connections. And he says, my theory gives you all that. It gives you all the realism that you need. But you kind of define now knowing the real world in, in a new way, in terms of the ways in which human beings can possibly interpret the world. And so he... Uh, it's quite revolutionary and he decides that our theories about what objectivity and truth themselves are have to be decided and argued for relative to what human beings can do. Okay, thank you. Um, Just as we're wrapping up now, I wonder, Andrew, what do you think Kant got right and what do you think he got wrong? (laughs) Well, that's a a bit of a difficult question. Um, I I think that... uh, he got right that the uh, ways in which metaphysicians were attempting to answer their questions right. was uh, not likely to lead to any uh, correct answers. But whether he was right to make the claims 
that he did make, that space and time are simply contributed by us and don't exist in themselves, whether he was right that the mind has certain basic concepts and laws without which we couldn't experience yeah. objects in space and time at all, these absolutely basic thoughts of Kant, important, although uh, um, if they're true, are, are indeed revolutionary, I think do, we do need to ask ourselves very carefully whether they are in fact correct. Okay, uh, uh, so John, what what do you still find compelling about Kant's philosophy? Well, I think there's some sense in which his story about how the mind contributes the mm -hmm. structure to the way that we perceive s seems very plausible, right. but those questions are now getting investigated by psychologists rather than philosophers. Right. So a lot of, in terms of, perhaps it's a bit strange, but the thing that I find most compelling about Kant's way of looking at the world is related to the first thing he said, that the mind has lots of questions that it is burdened with. It has to ask these questions, but they ca uh, it can't answer them. And even once you've discovered that you can't answer these questions, those problems are still there. They're still troubling you. Right. But now you know that you've got to find something other than philosophy in order to talk about them. Maybe it's about uh, religion. Maybe it's right. about moral practice and just engaging with each other in the world. But what he does is actually draw an idea uh, that philosophy itself is a certain limited practice. It can get us a lot, but it, it itself has a limit. Okay, fantastic. And on that note, we'll uh, we'll call it a day. Next week, we'll be talking about metaethics, so you can t tune in and find out what that is. Uh, I've been Grant Bartley. You've been listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. Uh, if if you like philosophy, read Philosophy Now and look up my books on the web, please. Uh, and uh, thank you, Francesco, our engineer here. And uh, goodbye. <laughs>